0: guys are doing well. We've got an amazing episode planned for you today with a really awesome guest. Our guest today was elected as a councillor of Melbourne in 2012 and also in 2016 as deputy lord mayor of Melbourne. He's the founder and principal of the award-winning environmental educational program Kids Teaching Kids and a respected sustainability and environmental leader. He was selected to be part of Al Gore's Climate Change Leadership Program and he was also the winner of the United Nations Individual Award for Outstanding Service to the Environment and in 2001 was awarded as Young Australian of the Year. In this episode we talked about why he started his Kids Teaching Kids program, why it was important as well as talked about some of the biggest changes for cities as we know it, as the sustainable movement is gaining momentum. And yes, we definitely talked a little bit about tiny houses. Crazy Birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Aaron Wood.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here.
0: You're most welcome. So Aaron how did your sustainable journey actually start?
1: So, look for me. It goes all the way back to growing up in northwest Victoria on the banks of the River Murray, and it's just a, a beautiful spot. And you know, I still love getting back there as much as I can. But you know, I have to explain it a little bit. In the, my parents' house was right on a, a billabong, which you know in America they call it a horseshoe lake. And so, you know, growing up there as a child, our front yard was was literally a billabong. And so. You know, we would we would leave home in the morning on a weekend, and we would just go roaming. We'd go fishing, and we'd go, you know, riding our bikes. And what we would call across the other side, which was across the other side of the Billabong in our canoes, was a wildlife reserve. So there was just you know hectares and hectares of beautiful Australian bushland, and you'd see goannas and snakes and echidnas and kangaroos and yeah, we just had a, a beautiful childhood. And I think that connected me a lot with the environment, just growing up in a, in a beautiful space like that.
0: Wow, what a journey. And I believe there's a book also titled Billabong Boy out there?
1: There is, there is, yes. So my autobiography, which I wrote a few years back now, is called Billabong Boy because it had such a, a big impact on my life. And I remember I, I did a um, a Churchill Fellowship and it took me to the United Nations in in New York and Geneva. And I did this big speech in the UN General Assembly. And I stood up there and I, you know, I talked about growing up on a Billabong and how it shaped my, you know, environmental pathway. And then at the end of it, there was all these young people came up and, and one of the girls said, You own Billabong? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I do not own Billabong. I grew up on a Billabong. Very different story, not the clothing range, but a, a beautiful spot to grow up on. So and, and I think you know, for me, a lot of people say, so, you know, did you always, were you always, you know, an environmentalist or did you consider yourself someone who was really into the environment? And I wasn't, I just grew up loving the, I loved being outdoors. You know, I loved love just being out in nature. And so I think when you're immersed in nature and you've got nature around you a lot, it's really difficult not to grow up with a really respectful relationship with nature.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, it's really once you get to spend time in nature and once you really appreciate this, that you also know that it's so important to, to protect it because, you know, if we don't protect it, it's not going to be around for generations. And, you know, our children and grandchildren, they're not going to have the privilege to experience that. So it's really, really so important to preserve what we've got. And, you have been doing some amazing work. You are actually the founder and the managing director of an award-winning kids teaching kids program. So what exactly is Kids Teaching Kids and why was that important for you to actually start?
1: Yeah, this is um, you know, this has been my life's passion really. It's been going for 21 years now Kids Teaching Kids and as the name suggests, it's all about young people teaching each other so they become the teachers. We take them through a whole term of learning about what it means to be a teacher and how to educate others and they really understand that, that teaching is far different to lecturing or, or telling there's a there's a real skill in in being a teacher but they they choose a, a locally important environmental topic so it could be water or waste or energy it could be you know marine and coastal environments if they're a school that's located on our beautiful coastline could be you know aboriginal cultural respect for the environment you know with a school, you know, up in Walgood or Moree or somewhere like that because it's an Australia-wide program. And then they research that topic, they have to understand it inside and out. And then they have to take that topic and boil it down into teaching methods that that, that their fellow peers would understand. And then during either Kids Teaching Kids Week or what we call our kids conferences, they come together and they teach each other. and, And it's quite amazing to see just how kids come at problems in a really different way. So they might be teaching, you know, their, their fellow students about renewable energy and they'll build, you know, little renewable energy cars that can be powered by the sun and teach people that you can actually get energy from the sun to power things. So it's quite a, an inspiring and, you know, much more enjoyable and engaging way of learning when kids are doing it because they don't, it's not a boring lecture. There's, you know, dance and poetry and drama and role play and, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: And I'm sure they like they don't muck around like our adults. They straight to the point. They tell the truth, and they make us think about those choices as well.
1: Exactly, exactly. One thing about kids is they just their simplicity is their is their amazingness to to just you know ask a question that any adult would struggle with. You know why why does that happen like that or why does it need to always be like that? I think the other thing that they do is they really understand how each other learns so you know teachers learn best from teachers and business people learn best from fellow business people and our young kids learn best from each other of course the teachers are supporting this process the whole way through they're really important to the process as well it's 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 not just go away and do your own thing there's quite a lot involved in putting together a Kids Teaching Kids workshop to make make it successful.
0: Wow. And you guys have gone on for so many years. I mean, there's been over 130,000 kids that's been through this program. And correct me if I'm not having the right amount, but it's, it's just amazing. It's, yeah, it's phenomenal to think that that's how many families are being affected. And, you know, when your kid comes home and tell you certain stuff that they've learned, it really teaches us and it shows us also to do things different and you've got little people watching you, so you better get it right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just got a, a wonderful story the other day from one of our students who had been through the program, you know, quite a number of years ago now because it's been running for so long. She reflected that she got her dream job in the Northern Territory working in biodiversity and she said that, you know, the reason she got that job was the confidence that she built up through the Kids Teaching Kids program. So, you know, not only do these kids teach each other and not only are they, you know, real leaders in the future, they go into positions where they're making decisions and they're much better informed in making those decisions. So what we're doing is getting a really important base level understanding of natural processes and the environment and making sure then that they're better informed to make decisions that are uh, more sustainable into the future.
0: Wow, that's so important. And, I mean, when we also look at like climate change at the moment it is really a hot topic there is still so many people unfortunately that either think it's a hoax or have even not heard about climate change so we've just talked about all of these kids and how we get them to get more involved but how do we get some of the adults on board you know first to acknowledge that climate change is real it is an issue. And then to take steps, whether those steps are big or small for a sustainable future.
1: I think kids are actually a really great change agent. They do go home and teach their parents about things. They do have a way of, of talking about things, which, you know, when it comes from the mouth of a child, you know, an adults are less likely to get their back up over something. And I think the other way with, with teaching people is not necessarily to worry about, winning the argument, if you like. I think we spend a lot of time in environmental and sustainability sectors trying to get people to believe exactly what we believe. What I sometimes focus on is, what is your motivation here? So, if we talk about rooftop solar, for example, I don't mind if that person isn't putting solar panels on their roof to save the world. It's great that it does have that impact, but if they're putting those solar panels on the roof to save money, fine. We get to the same outcome without really having to worry too much about the philosophical argument and so i think with climate change you know approaching things like you know reducing emissions is actually good for us because you get better air quality if a child grows up living on a really busy road with a lot of petrol fumes and diesel fumes they have higher rates of respiratory illness so you know moving to electric vehicles is not only good for the environment but it can be good for us you know sustainable agriculture promotes much better soil health and so you you know, you don't have the sorts of issues you have with crops into the long term in, in needing to put huge amounts of fertilizer on so you can you can save money. So I think in some ways that education process is about understanding where people are coming from and then finding their motivations and putting that message in a way that, that actually resonates with them. You know, trying to go straight away to the conversation around do you believe in climate change or not can oft, often make people shut down. So I think a lot of it is about trying to respect that we've all got different different you know views and levels of understanding and going from there.
0: And that is one thing that I've been trying to do as well because when I started off on this journey I was like oh my goodness, this planet is in distress. We're not going to make it. We need to work and we need to do something now. You know, you're you're like so passionate and you're trying to change everyone overnight. And, you know, a lot of people were like, you know what, whatever you said, I'm going to do totally the opposite because I don't like how you approach me right now. So that is a lot of the times a problem. And I think definitely when we connect with people on a, on kind of a level and in the language that they understand, you know, you, you connect with one of their passions and you take it from there step by step. And, you know, you don't preach, you lead by example. And if people want to know more, they can always watch you. And also don't like say you do all of these things and then in the back, you know, you just like do totally the opposite. So that's definitely something that I've experienced. And you've done quite a lot in your life. I mean, you've also done or you were selected for the Al Gore's Climate Change Leadership Program. How has that affected a lot of the stuff that you've been doing as well?
1: Uh, look, I, and, and the great thing is I've been able to reconnect with the Al Gore when he came out again. And we worked with the uh, Victorian government to make Melbourne's tram network 100% renewable energy powered. So, that was a, a, a really amazing project, you know, which I was lucky enough to push and the Victorian government um, picked it up, ran with it and and made it happen. And uh, Al Gore actually gave me a shout out at one of his sessions with climate reality leaders. And, you know, that's pretty special when, when someone like Al Gore gives you a shout out. But I think the, the interesting thing about Al Gore is he's doing such amazing work and yet he polarizes a lot of people too. So there's a lot of people that are like, no, Al Gore is crazy and he doesn't know what he's talking about. But you know, that guy is a pretty hard-nosed in terms of, you know, economics and vice-presidency and, and, and would have been the president, came very close to being the president of the United States. And I think people paint this as kind of something that he does for himself, but I think he can do all sorts of things. He's chosen to take on this issue because it is such a significant issue. He knows it's a significant issue for some of our most vulnerable in the world in terms of humanity. He knows it's a huge economic issue. He knows it's an environmental issue and he's he's doing what he can to uh, educate others. So I think he's, he's, he's amazing. That was an amazing couple of days that I got to spend with him. I've really got a lot of respect for people who have long-term commitment to trying to bring about change.
0: Oh, definitely. I can just imagine that was probably a great, great experience. And yeah, absolutely love all the work that he's been doing and really, really inspired by that. And, you know, you've just mentioned Melbourne You have actually worked quite a few years for the City of Melbourne. You are currently serving as the Deputy Lord Mayor and I hope I'm saying it right because in most other countries we say Mayor but in Australia, no, no, it's called Mayor, right?
1: That is exactly right. You've got the pronunciation (laughs) perfect.
0: And you are currently running for the Lord Mayor. For me and for many other people, I've been getting these questions quite a lot that it's not always easy to get in touch with our Lord Mayor and to express concerns and topics that's really close to our hearts. You know, how can communities and individuals actually better engage with our leaders to work towards, you know, addressing and to also solve some issues?
1: Yeah, look, it's a a really... Big question. I try and be as accessible as I can. You can email your your local councillors. You can come along and attend the meetings. And I I know a lot of people sort of think, oh, you know, why would I go along to a council meeting? But I want to say that coming along to a council meeting that you know happens in the evening and putting a question to councillors or making a submission on an item that's important to you, we actually do listen to that. So you might think that you know there's no point in doing those things, but there actually is. You know, writing into council, sending in an email—you know, these sorts of things don't go ignored. I mean, sometimes there's a lot of a, a lot of contact, and it may take a while to to get to someone. But don't underestimate—you know—what a letter or an email or turning up to a council meeting can actually do. The other thing I think that's really important is to engage with local groups. So, if there's an issue that's really important to you, you know, be part of the residents' association or, or become part of. Know your local biodiversity or or, or land care group or whatever it might be, because the more people you sort of get that care about your issue, the more uh, notice that that often brings. Um, I, I won't lie that uh, politicians are very interested in numbers of people that care about something.
0: Oh wow! Well, that's amazing, and congratulations on running for lone mayor. I am sure it's going to be an absolutely amazing race. We'll definitely be rooting all the way from Brisbane and hopefully some of our crazy birds that's in Melbourne can actually go and support you as well. So also coming back to like Victoria. So in 2019, the state of Victoria introduced a bag ban for like lightweight plastic shopping bags. There's been many other states as well um, that's done that and also other countries in the world. But there is really a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes that we as the public do not always get to see. You know, we get to see these posters like plastic bags banned now or, you know, kind of the lead up to it. But can you maybe take us through what kind of process there is to actually change the policies and to introduce these bags? What is like the stuff we don't see that you guys do magically yeah
1: look look it's a it's a a lot of these processes are quite long processes because there's legislative change that might be required then there's working through you know obviously it's well and good to bring in a ban of something but is that having an adverse impact on an industry that that was you know legitimately trading is there a need for compensation you know what legislative change is required to to make it enforceable and then, what's the processing, and and what are the alternatives that need to be put in place to enable a, a plastic ban like that to occur? And what are all sorts, so the different groups, you know, the supermarkets and so on, that you need to actually get on board? And then, how's that going to be phased? Is the, is the other critical thing? And then, I think one of the most important things, particularly about bans, is what are the unintended consequences? You know. Is this suddenly going to mean that people bought, buy more hardline, um, thicker plastic bags, or there's suddenly a lot more reusable bags that are being used constantly because people are constantly forgetting their bags? I think what's shown by the plastic bag bans in just about every state now is that they do work. That single-use plastics drop markedly. Yes, you get a, a you know an increase in people buying reusable bags and so on, but they but they do actually work. The other big one for us is the, um, the ban on e-waste going to landfill. So, you know, when a ban like that goes in, that's pretty significant. You've then got to try and create some end markets for those recyclable materials. So a lot goes into, you know, that moment the campaign starts and everyone says, stop this or do this or do that. Then, unfortunately, there's a whole lot of processes that have to be worked through. And I think the average person, the, the general public can sometimes think, oh, my gosh, why does this take so long? This mm. is insane. But yeah, the rules and regulations, um, yeah, often take a while to work through.
0: Well, and I can also imagine just as passionate I am about, you know, obviously a bag ban or e-waste not going to landfill, there's a lot of other people that's feeling very passionate about exactly the opposite, you know, because they might not want to go through all the has- hazards and, you know, obstacles to... Now take their e-waste to a specific thing. You know, it's so much easier to just dump it in your in your bin. So I can imagine, you know, you guys get both the the ends of the spectrum. And as someone in in a leadership role, you kind of have to weigh out, and you know, it's it's hard. It's not always easy.
1: No, it's not. And you know, the other part of this is the education campaign that needs to go along with it because you know, behavioural change. Is never as simple as just changing a rule. You've really got to have that education change and and socialise the the change so that um that people get on board with it and and things like you know how people deal with their waste can be very sensitive issues. You know if you you suddenly go from one bin to two bins or three bins or you're asking people to separate their waste at the source, you know that can often get some pretty passionate and kind of heated debates going. But um you know you've done right and and the outcomes are, are really worked towards in a in an understanding way, then then real change is possible.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. So now we are also seeing more people actually spending their dollars with the environment in mind, you know. This includes anything from how they actually purchase their clothing, their food, how they bank, where they invest their super, and also how they live. There has been an increase in people wanting to live in smaller houses and also off the grid to actually reduce their footprint even more. And Melbourne is one of the first cities in Australia to actually approve a long-term occupancy in an urban environment for a tiny house in St. Kilda. And I do believe the house is off grid or it's planning to be in the future and it also only uses half of Melbourne's daily water target. So, what are your thoughts on this movement from an environmental
1: perspective? Look, I think anything that uh, reduces people's impact on the environment is a good thing. I think interestingly enough, and off-grid and 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 those sorts of movements, I think are fantastic. and and the fact that people think so deeply about sustainability is is quite amazing. I, I have a slightly different view about the grid because, the grid's really important in many respects because we still need to move renewable energy around uh, our country. So, you know, where it's really sunny, often maybe the population that needs the energy is, is far away or where it's really windy, the population might be further away. And rooftop solar and, and those sorts of things are, are, are really fantastic. I've got a, a big system on my roof and I, I love how much electricity it, it generates. But when you're in a really dense area like city of Melbourne, 80% of our people live in apartments so this idea of having you know lots of rooftop solar in the city is is really quite difficult because you just don't have that that many rooftops and you've got lots of people so large scale renewables is really important and to ensure large scale renewables works you've got to have a have a really good grid a smart grid that can take in lots of different forms of energy and make sure that's then usable by by cities so I think we've got to come at this from a number of angles. Energy efficiency is really important. We've got to make our homes and our cars and you know our whole system far more energy efficient because we waste a lot of energy. That's one thing. And then we've also got to change our energy mix away from coal to get much more renewable energy into the system. And I'm really proud the City of Melbourne, uh, for our own operations, is now 100% renewable energy powered through the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project, which I led, which actually invested with a group purchasing model for large-scale renewables in a wind farm in regional Victoria. So um, that's really exciting that we could use our purchasing power to drive renewable energy investment.
0: Wow, that's really, really awesome. It's definitely, it makes sense about the grid and everything. And we've got, I mean, geez, we've seen (laughs) so many of these tiny houses popping up, and a lot of them actually also feed back into the grid. So I think People can also realise that by having solar on your roof, there is a possibility for you to feed some of the energy that you don't use back into the grid and you can actually get some money for it as well. So, it's definitely a win-win situation.
1: It, absolutely. And and I think the same goes for you know electric vehicles in terms of smoothing the peaks in our energy use that often it might only be one or two hours a day when we just need a bit of a boost of energy because everyone's turned their air conditioning on or or whatever it might be and the smart grids of the future will be able to have monitor how many electric vehicles are plugged into the system you know they would have filled their batteries up and it might be that then they they just need a bit of surge capacity and these you know thousands of electric vehicles with their charged batteries can provide that one or two hours of peak power to ensure that we don't have to keep building these huge generators which are only used for you know some so, you know some peak times throughout the year so i think smart technology smart grids combined with renewable energy, can, can be some pretty exciting leaps forward.
0: What is your your thoughts on this tiny house movement that is happening all over Australia at the moment and has become a very hot topic as well?
1: I haven't had a lot of exposure to the tiny house movement, I have to be absolutely honest. I think anything that reduces our environmental impact is a, is a really good thing. But because I'm the Deputy Mayor of a very built-up city, the room for tiny houses, even though they're tiny, is is not so great in in City of Melbourne. So, our big focus is on how do we make our apartment towers more energy efficient? How do we make our you know our lifts and our shared spaces more energy efficient? You know, how do we ensure that we can you know get more electric vehicles being used? More people on the public transport? You know, how do we ensure that we've got the most water efficient buildings? You know, they're are the sort of considerations which are which are probably um, more Topical for the city of Melbourne because we just don't have a lot of space for for the tiny house movement. Not saying at all that I don't support it, I I love the idea of, of that tiny house movement and kind of reducing your environmental footprint. I think it's great.
0: So, we'll definitely have to arrange a tour for you to go and see the one in St Kilda. And hopefully, you can visit our tiny house once it's done as well so that you can see what the movement's all about. And hopefully, we can see more of these popping up around. Victoria as well. So we've talked about some of the challenges and things. But what do you think will be the biggest changes for cities as we know it today as the sustainability movement is actually gaining momentum?
1: Oh, look, I think um renewable energy is is really critical for the future of this country. So we will see 100% renewable energy. We have to um, if we're really truly to combat climate change. So that's a significant change in cities that were once big energy providers, and and we've really got to make sure that this is an, an equitable transition, a just transition. That if you're um if you've worked in the coal industry in in Maui or Morwell, you know you need to be looked after as this transition occurs, and and that's really important to me that. You know, these people that have just been working in industries, you know, doing the right thing and and, and earning a living, we have to make sure these transitions that occur as our economy changes to a more sustainable economy, that no one gets left behind in the process. That's going to be really, really important to making sure that there's there's widespread support for a more sustainable future.
0: Definitely. Well, you guys have your work cut out for yourself, it seems. And I'm super excited to be watching this journey and, you know, to see how Australia is going to go more towards renewable energy and how Melbourne is going to have an impact as well. So yeah, thank you so much for all of that. Appreciate it. What has been one of your most important decisions that you've made around Mama Earth?
1: The biggest decision in my time was was about leading the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. That project now is spurred a second project, so there's been two, and it's enough power to um, power the average of forty thousand average size homes for a year with renewable energy. So I'm really, really proud of that.
0: Wow, that's amazing! Well done. Hey guys, before we move into our final five, I wanted you to take a moment and just take a deep breath right there where you are and just know that you are amazing and that I absolutely appreciate that you are listening to this podcast and keeping us going and I would so much appreciate if you guys can go on whichever platform it is that you're listening to this right now and leave us a review and tell all the world out there what you think about the Mama Earth Talk podcast and just spread some love. And I'm going to spread some love as well. And just because you guys are so amazing, I want you guys to have my free beginner's guide to waste reliving. It's a guide where I share with you nine of my tips to get you started on your waste-free living. (laughs) It also includes a bin audit. If you've never really done a bin audit and don't know where to start, it can help you actually to find out what is these culprits that's filling up your bin. You'll also see what is in my sustainability kit And boy, do I have some secrets for you and some also fun facts along the way. And if you've ever wanted to freeze items in glass, well, this guide's going to get you covered with that as well. I'm going to put the link in the show notes for you guys so you can go there and download it. Let me know how it goes. And if you have any questions along the way, hit me up and send them over my way and i would be more than happy to answer each and every single one of you guys. Well, that's enough for me now. Let's head back right into the final five. So the first one is what is one social media account or publication that you
1: follow? Oh, my gosh. I should have put some more thought into this, shouldn't I? <laughs> I'm going to say not one. I follow lots and lots and lots of media accounts. You have to do that as a poll.
0: Any one in particular that our crazy birds can find inspiring to go and oh, follow?
1: I'd re- I'd, this is the one I should have put some more thought into, shouldn't I? <laughs> I think you should follow at KTKAus, at K-T-K-A-U-S. That's Kids Teaching Kids. I'd love you to all jump on board and follow that.
0: Awesome. We'll definitely link that up in the show notes as well for all our crazy birds. And Aaron, what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward?
1: Oh, look, I hope that we can still breathe the air and drink the water and, and grow our food. It's as simple as that, that we've got to get this sustainability challenge right so that we can keep enjoying you know the life that we've got used to. That's, that's my hope for the future.
0: Awesome. And what advice can you give us, can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth?
1: My biggest one is if you, if you haven't selected green energy, you know, on your bill, then, then please do. Like it might cost a little bit more, but it's a massive, massive change for the planet. The more people that take green energy, that means the more renewable energy in our system.
0: Awesome. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room, with people not yet on a sustainable journey.
1: That in Australia we have the highest penetration of rooftop solar in the world. Over two and a half million households have solar on their roof.
0: Wow, that's phenomenal. That's quite a lot of houses.
1: It is. And it means that it means that sustainability is possible and it's happening, you know, all around us. And it's not some big amazing thing that you have to do. It's it's mums and dads and People in country towns and in cities just going, you know what, I'm going to put solar on my roof. And that's a a huge thing.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I can't wait to see that number going up to 3 million and 4 million and then all the houses. So, yeah, that's some some goals for the future.
1: Dream big, dream big.
0: Exactly. And Aaron, where can people actually find you?
1: So they can find me at Aaron Wood, so A-R-R-O-N, Wood. And that's across you know Twitter and Instagram and uh, LinkedIn and yeah I'm on all of those all those platforms.
0: Awesome, and I'm going to link that all up for our Crazy Birds in the show notes, so you guys can go over there and just click on the links, and it will take you right to that. So Aaron, thank you so much for being on the podcast and you know saving some time out or making some time for us to talk about such an important topic. And it's just great to see that people in your position is making a difference and really, you know, doing doing it and taking a step, not just for sustainability, but also for the next generation and also leading by example.
1: Thanks so much. I really enjoyed the chat.
0: You're most welcome. Well, thank you so much. That's a wrap. And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guests, for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the MamaEarthTalk.com's website. The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast. If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes. So if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next, maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes, why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them. Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms and they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best place would probably be a DM on Instagram at by Mariska, or pop me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday. So make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.